Hi, I'm Mikey Domagal, and you're watching episode 14 of Inside Buzz. On this episode, we have Israel Gutierrez, a longtime ESPN reporter who could be seen on shows like Around the Horn and Highly Questionable. For all young journalists watching, take in Israel's advice. I listened very closely, and I'm going to take a lot from this interview because he answered tons of questions about the field. He spent over 20 years in the field. You know, currently he's with ESPN, does some stuff for the NBA as a sideline reporter, but he's also worked for the Miami Marlins and the Miami Heat. So tons of high pressure situations that he's been in that we could all learn from. Israel, welcome to the show and thanks for taking the time. Hey, thanks man, no problem. How's quarantine going in Florida and what kind of jobs have you been doing for ESPN and the companies you work for? Um, Work-wise, that's been probably the weirdest part. Um, you know, having to do everything from home. Uh, initially, they just, uh, ESPN just started sending, you know, some lights and some tripods and everything. And we all just kind of figured out how to do these shows from home. And it's been, it's been challenging. Um, I think more so because of the topics, not necessarily because of the technology or anything. Um, but it's, it's been challenging, but I think, um, you know, I think we're all sort of waiting, fortunately, or waiting uh, to get back to the studios. And Israel, one of those topics for the NBA, the return for the bubble in Orlando in late July. Do you know any reporters who are going there and the circumstances they're going to be under? And were you asked? There's no, re we still don't know, basically, is the short answer. Um, there's a limit as to how many people can be there and be there in certain tiers and what have you. There's just a lot of things that are still to be worked out. Um, fortunately, you know, for the players and, and the teams, that kind of stuff has been worked out for us it's still we're just sort of filling the gaps if you will and so it could be where um it very well could be that i'm going i'm sort of got it in my mind where i am but be that they only know games you know maybe they do broadcasting some games from home as a possibility i don't i don't know that if that's the case that i haven't really shared that the whole point being is um you know we'll know relatively soon but it's still a work in progress and izzy let's jump right into your career Take me through how you started, how you got your interest, and now, you know, a little more than 20 years later, how you got to ESPN. It's funny because, you know, being in high school, uh, it's funny how uh, I've been thinking about this lately, just how the world life just kind of takes you where it takes you. And um, I remember I was going into, when I was going into high school, it was uh, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade here. So there was no ninth grade freshman year. That was, that was in junior high. And so I get into going into 10th grade and I wanted to really be in a class with my older sister who was two years older than me. So it was her senior year. And the only class we could figure that out for was the yearbook class. And so, like I said, I've never really been the most social person, right? So school was always kind of my main focus. And so it just so happened that in a lot of things that I did, whether it be yearbook, whether it be debate club, whether it be like senior class stuff, like if I got involved at all, I ended up sort of being in charge and so um my sophomore year I was just in the class like I said just to kind of be in a class with my older sister and then by the next year I was already editor-in-chief and then I was editor of the next year after that and so that's what sort of sparked my journalistic interest because to be honest I wanted to be a lawyer and that's why I did the debate thing and all that stuff and I was you know pretty decent at it and um still think I would have been a pretty good trial lawyer but when I get to uh when I got to Florida the University of Florida I still hadn't really fully decided, but um, I just decided that I feel like I would have been successful in whatever field I decided to go into. And so I just decided on one that would be fun. And um, so I went into journalism. And even then, I didn't entirely say, okay, it's sports journalism. 
until like going into my junior year. And that's when I realized that, you know, I hated covering, you know, county courts for my reporting class and all this other stuff. And I was like, this is not really in my future. And so um, I looked and I asked around, I took a sports reporting class, which were, they were offering my junior year. And there was a couple people in there, a couple guys in there that were in this, that were in the student newspaper that I recognized. And so I asked one of them, you might know him, Jamie Eisenberg from CBS Fantasy Sports. Uh, he does fantasy football. Hello, Jamie, yep. Yeah, I asked him, uh, hey, can you uh, show me how to, you know, how to start the work for the, the, the Alligator, which is the name of the, the student newspaper. And he just took me literally, I think right after that class, took me over to the building and introduced me to some people. And, um, you know, they gave me my first assignment and it was off from there. And like, um, you know, a couple of semesters into that, I was working for some newspapers across the state doing some freelancing um, and for the Associated Press as well. And I got an internship right after that. And then my going into my last semester at Florida, I stayed an extra half semester because I wanted to cover the football team. Um, I just got a job right before I graduated, a job offer right before I graduated at the Palm Beach Post. And that was crazy because, um, I mean, even back then, this was 1999, even then, you know, newspapers were struggling and, you know, all of my friends had all anticipated, you know, getting a job somewhere other than anywhere they wanted to and then having to work their way up. And so for me to get uh, a job at the Palm Beach Post, which was, you know, 35 minutes, maybe 45 minutes north of where I grew up, um, was it's crazy. It was crazy. And even crazier, like three weeks into it, they gave me the Marlins beat, which is, I mean, what? <laughs> I was 22 years old. Yeah, especially as a young kid. Uh, yeah, I remember going in and it was, I mean, almost, I think it was literally my first day. And Dave O'Brien, he's, I think, yeah, he's now at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, but he was at the South Florida Sun-Sentinel at the time. He said, I remember he asked me how old I was. And I said, 22. And uh, I was like, and then I, I think I said something smart, Alec. He, like, I turned 23 in two months. <laughs> and he said, he said, yeesh, whatever happened to paying your dues? <laughs> And I kind of just listened to that and I just kind of giggled. I was like, cool, I don't have to do that, I guess. <laughs> and so uh, I did that for a year. And then toward the end of that season, our um, Miami Heat beat writer, Ethan Skolnick, uh, was going to, to the Miami Herald. So he was leaving the paper. And so, you know, that had been my dream. I remember um, leaving school and one of my professors had asked me where I wanted to be in 10 years. And I said, hey, in 10 years, I'd love to be, you know, covering a NBA team for a major Metro newspaper. And it just so happened that I started in October of 2000, which was 10 months after I graduated. So that was, um, it was kind of crazy. And uh, I did that for two years and then got hired by the Miami Herald for the same job. And then did, uh, did that for a handful of years and then got bumped up to being a sports columnist. And then a certain guy named LeBron James came to town. <laughs> and I was still a columnist at the Heralds for the 2010-2011 season. And then if you remember that 2011-2012 season, that was a lockout to start. And so it didn't actually start until December. Um, and that whole, that was maddening for me because I was sort of in this, uh, weird game because ESPN wanted to hire me. Dot com had finally asked, they finally wanted to hire me for the right job. Like I'd been asked to do a couple of other jobs for ESPN, didn't really fit what I wanted to do. And then um, they asked, hey, do you want to be an NBA columnist for us? At the time, uh, I'm sure you know J.A. Adande. 
at the time he was writing columns still and he was living out west in LA and they, they sort of pitched it as an East Coast version of J.A. Adande, of course, with me being down in the center of the basketball universe, which was Miami at the time, um, which is crazy because even though I, I took that job and started doing that, like the, it was such a big deal that he that they just kept flying people in to write columns and it was like uh, Mike Wilbon, Stephen A. Smith, Brian Windhorst and I'm just sitting here like I live here like why can't I just do all this yeah, I got it. <laughs> but that what my point is is that's how big you know that era was like it was it didn't matter we couldn't have enough you know it was all of us were writing and so um yeah I finally just um took that job in 2012 uh because I was sitting there waiting. They wanted to hire me in October, but there wasn't an NBA season, so they couldn't do that yet. So I didn't even know when I should quit the Miami Herald because I knew it was like just a matter of time. I ended up just guessing. And I went, I went like two weeks where I didn't have a job at all, and that was kind of nuts. But, uh, but yeah, that's when um, – so I've been with the ESPN ever since. And when I got there, you know, I, I was doing a lot of writing um, and still doing some TV and still doing Around the Horn and at the time the sports reporters and – um, but it was mostly centered around the writing. And then I started doing some sideline reporting, I think in 2013, a year later. And then slowly the writing sort of drifted because our, our, our staff just increased and they didn't really need like the hot take column or they didn't want all that stuff. And so, um, you know, now I'm doing mostly that is you know, the NBA sidelines and the around the horn and HQ and, you know, wherever they need me. And I'm trying to work on, you know, individual personal projects as well. So how was the transition from mostly being a columnist and, and writing all day and stuff like that to being more in the public eye and on television? It's weird because, you know, growing up, I remember reading a lot of like Dan Levitard. I read, and I don't think people do this necessarily today, but I was at the time still very much distinguishing between the columnist and the beat writers. Because I remember a guy by the name of Steve Weiss, who was, covers the NFL now, um, he was the Miami Heat beat writer that I was reading when I was in high school, but I would always read Levitard, you know, and Greg Cody and Linda Robertson for the columns. And for some reason, I never really thought of myself as a columnist. I never thought of myself as like quick witted or like great with words necessarily, which is, you know, I guess crazy because nobody ever, um, nobody ever told me I was a talented writer until I was actually writing for a living, which is weird. Um, <laughs> and so uh, I remember reading on them and never really thinking I would be a columnist. Um, I remember thinking, you know, covering a team is cool and I'd get to be around the NBA all the time. I think that was probably what was drawing me was I just loved basketball more than anything. Um, and I wanted to be around that particular sport. And I'd be okay if it was football or if it was, you know, bath baseball or anything else or golf or tennis, but basketball is what I really loved. I, I, I just, that's kind of what I wanted to do. I never, wanted to be in television at the time there weren't I mean outside of watching sports center at night and you know listening to the anchors and stuff I don't remember ever saying hey I want to be like that guy you know and so um it never crossed my mind and then I remember when I became a columnist in 2007 very soon thereafter in 2008 um I got a call from Joe Valerio who was a producer of the sports reporters and asked me to do the show and I remember I couldn't because I had to go to Beijing to cover the Olympics. And, but as soon as I got back, I was like, of course, I'd be more than happy to. And it was just, it was really surreal. You know, at the time they filmed it at the ESPN zone in, um, in Times Square. 
and it was just a really musty old smell like it smelled exactly like you would think a bar would at six in the morning um they had some like really stale like not stale they were decent bagels but uh just bagels and orange <laughs> juice there and it was a makeup artist that but like the, the lights weren't very good so like and so i remember doing this and thinking like wow this is this is as good as it gets <laughs> this is mike lupica this is uh, mitch album this is uh i don't even know who else was on there um and i thought you know it it went really well i liked the experience and i could see myself doing that in that sort of professional setting and then around the horn came along and had a little dose of fun to it and um i've never seen myself i guess in a roundabout way to ask your question i've never seen myself as being the voice of a fan base or a voice of sports. I've always thought an information giver. Um, and so this twist has been, it's been fun. It's been sort of uh, gratifying and like sort of makes that time, even though it didn't feel like that long of a time, that decade plus that I spent, uh, I'm sorry, decade, almost two decades uh, writing, um, that it sort of created this track record and people, you know, credibility and people actually, you know, listen to what you have to say and they respect it and i think that is sort of a cool twist that i never really anticipated and what are some like top career moments that you've had where you said oh wow i'm really in this position i heard you talking about the olympics beijing but what about like certain you know certain spots you've reported at certain interviews that you've had yeah i mean there's a couple that come to mind and you mentioned um beijing uh that's almost always the first one that comes to mind and not just because it was beijing but there was one particular time um i went to the great wall of china once by myself and then i went a second time and that second time i happened to be with uh Dwayne wade chris paul Derek williams and just you know a handful of nba players and i was up there talking to Dwayne wade for a lot of it and it was that was crazy you know on, t on top of one of the world's greatest monuments with you know, at the time in, in this fifth year, sixth year, like one of the greatest players in the game and just a guy that I had covered and watched. It was kind of a, a weird situation because, you know, I sort of grew up as a writer about the same time as Dwayne did. And, you know, he reached this crazy pinnacle, obviously. And I just felt like, wow, it was just a very... It's one of those moments that you don't actually, it just hits you right away. It's like, wow, this isn't, this isn't something that everybody gets to do, you know? Um, I remember another time I was, <laughs> this was in 2005 when Shaq had gotten traded to Miami. Uh, a couple of the, or the beat writers were, you know, asked to meet him at the pool at the Mandan Oriental, I think it was, uh, because he was doing a Sports Illustrated photo shoot, and then he would just do one-on-one -on -one interviews with each of us, one after the other. And while we were doing our interview, like we had put our feet in the pool because he was sitting there. Uh, he was actually in the pool. So I just, you know, rolled up my pant legs and put my feet in the pool. And at one time he was talking about um, how the Lakers told him that with his toe injury, hey, relax, relax, take your time. We don't need you yet. And in doing so, to make his point, he grabbed my foot out of the pool and started like massaging my foot. And I'm just like, all right there's another moment that like most people probably will never experience. And it's something that's just, it's minor, but it's funny. You know, it's just kind of one of those, men, you know, image, uh, immediate snapshots or, or whatever. Um, and then like, there's just other times where I'm sitting back and I'm watching 
a game, like I was watching the 06 finals, um, and I just found myself on the screen by accident. And I just, and it's not that I forgot that I was there, but it just made, because I was watching it all differently because I was watching it on TV for maybe the first or second time. And it just makes me say, you know, holy, like I've, I've done overall just some really cool stuff. And I, I don't know if, um, you know, if I missed out on other parts of my life because I was so like driven and focused on sports and work and like, but you know, I don't mind that. I mean, I still got a lot of living to go. So uh, it's just, uh, I think all, a lot of it, if I were to like think about it, I could say, man, like that was a pretty cool moment. But um, I would say in totality, like just, all of it like the fact that you know somebody walking uh walking into a bar a couple of years ago told me that meeting me was like on her bucket list or something and i was just like what what world am i living in so <laughs> i guess all of it is just kind of a it's kind of pinched me if you will but you know like that shack story how do you build those relationships as a reporter with these players because I'm sure you don't want to bother them too much in certain ways, but then, you know, you need to get your story. So talk about building relationships with guys like that. That's a good question. I think that's probably, um, for me, going in was the most challenging thing, or at least the thing I thought about the most, because I was never wanting to be one of those intrusive types, right? Um, in it, I, it was the one part about being a reporter that didn't seem to fit me is like, I wasn't the nosy gossip but that's kind of what you're supposed to be as a reporter, right? Like you're supposed to get in people's business. And so um, my way of doing that was essentially letting my work speak for itself or letting me speak for myself and, and just how I carry myself and, you know, the work that I do and just in conversations with them, just being a person, you know, um, not saying that I always have to schmooze and, you know, say, Hey, how are your kids and all that stuff just to, just so that they think that I'm human, but just, you know, just, again, be myself, um, be a professional, of course, but be myself and let, I, I personally don't, you know, I, hmm, this is going to sound really conceited. I don't, I, I'm hard to not like, <laughs> like I, I don't know, I don't mean to say that, like, everybody loves me. I mean, like, very few people hate. Me. And so I feel like if, you know, if I'm just myself, and, and, you know, these guys recognize that, and I think that's that, gets some of their respect right um but a lot of it does come from the work and so if um if joe schmo comes in he's only been in the business for three years comes into a locker room as a cool guy and is, uh seems like he's being genuine um you know that doesn't mean that jimmy butler is gonna give him good stuff because he doesn't know yet like he doesn't know whether um he can trust him yet and um the other part about that is is when guys they don't want to waste their best stuff. They want to know what's going to be heard. And so if they have something to say, you know, they're probably going to reach out to, to a guy that Woj or somebody that's going to get it out there. So times have changed in that respect, but just in terms of, you know, getting players respect, I think that's just the way you have to do it. Um, I was never, even Shaq, for example, was a guy that I tried to figure that out. Like I was one, I was like, man, this is a mega star to me. He felt like the biggest star on the planet coming in into my lap and like how am I going to do this and so I I remember initially doing something really corny like almost saying to him like hey, come on like come on like I'm gonna be your guy right <laughs> uh, not like not that ridiculous but um I remember him essentially telling me yeah and then but then there was one time where I just had to do my job 
And, you know, he didn't like the story that I wrote and it had something to do with Eddie Jones. I don't remember the details, but that was it. Like he, he said, we're done. And I was like, okay, well, this isn't that type of, this is, you know, it's stupid. You know, so I just said, all right, well, clearly a few days later we were talking again. So, you know, it's not really the way to go is just go about your business. And there, there will be guys that, that you get along with better that, you know, you can ask certain questions of. And there will be guys that you're just not going to be able to touch. Um, LeBron James is somebody that you don't really get close to him. You get close to the people around him. And then, you know, you possibly get close to him, uh, at least at this stage of his career. And so, um, you know, it just takes a lot of effort and maintaining those relationships. It has to be high on your priority list. Let's put it that way. So, Izzy, what should journalists do to, like, put them apart from the other competition? Because journalism today, you know, in the – in 2020, where media is at everybody's fingertips, it's a lot, there's a lot more competition that goes into it. It's such a difficult question because, and you and I talked before we did this, but, and so you already know some of this, but if you really look at some of the bigger names in sports media, some of the bigger sports personalities, whether it be anything from like sideline reporters to, you know, big time opinionists or whatever, um, and look at their path, because this whole TV sports media thing has blown up, I would say in what the last 20 years, maybe there weren't like, it's not made up of a lot of people that said, that's what I'm going to do. I want to chase that goal and they're doing right. Um, somebody like Mike Green. Yeah. I mean, that's his craft. He worked at it. He, he said, I'm going to do that. And he's doing it. But people who are in jobs that weren't around 25, 30 years from now, you know, the around the horn jobs, the opinionist jobs, the Stephen A. Smith, the first tick, like those weren't there and, and available. Like I, the only things I can think of, of way back in the day is like um, the Monday night football booth was a place people wanted to go, um, you know, and again, the play by play and color analysts and stuff like that. But um, there's so many more jobs that are, are desirable now. And, you know, and if you're good at just offering an opinion, you can create a television show. Like all that stuff wasn't around necessarily before. So it's tough to say what to do or what to, because not only do we, did we follow a certain, did we all follow certain paths, but the picture is changing. The goalposts are moving all the time. And so the one thing that I, <laughs> I try to advise is I think we're leaning toward a more, because everything you say is going to get vetted. Everything, you know, is going to get fact checked. You're going to get picked apart left and right. You just have to be really, really thorough. You have to be really um, well self-taught. You have to be um, informed. You just, you can't get caught by surprise. I think there's going to be so, there's so many moments where a guy like Stephen A can get away with having the guy who didn't even play on a team and saying he's playing on that team and just brush it off because he's got such a track record. But if you're going to, if you're going to come up in this, if you're going to come up in this era when everything is, is examined and, and parsed, like you're, you, you have to be above reproach almost. And, you know, I think of guys like, um, or people like uh, Bomani Jones, who, you know, he goes at you hard, but it's hard to get him with anything because he comes armed with information um, and, you know, a talented debate uh tactics i guess uh and so you and you know somebody like mina who mina kimes who um it's 
it's not an easy place. It's still not an easy place for women to work. And for her to be an expert in football, NFL football, um, and to, you know, excel in that, she, she has to be, you know, she cannot be questioned. And I think that, and as difficult as that sounds, that is the primary advice for me is whatever field you choose or whatever, um, whether it be one specific sport or whether it be, um, you know, a broadcast or, or writing, just, just know that you can't really fake it. <laughs> like you've got to, you've got to be really good. You've got to be thorough and just got to dive in and, it's going to take, and, and I think now because you have to be more versatile, you know, I remember when Mina first came to Around the Horn, um, she would give the shortest answers and I was so worried for her. I was like, no, Mina, we got to go longer. <laughs> and so, and now she's great. She's amazing. And um, you can sort of mold yourself, but you definitely have to uh, take the time and the effort and just have to be committed. To get to ESPN or a big company like that, how much does luck go into that stuff and timing with who you meet? I said this all the time. Like I was 100% right place, right time, no matter where. And I'll tell you, I'll give you examples all along the way. Like I mentioned the LeBron example. If LeBron signed for Chicago, I don't think, uh, I don't think ESPN comes calling for me. Um, I don't know that to be true. I could just, um, I could be lying, but uh, <laughs> or it could be wrong, but uh, that's one of them. Um, I... When I was at the, um, the intern that preceded me, uh, I won't say his name, he's not in the field, so I have no idea where he went, um, but they hated him. He was arrogant, he turned down stories left and right, and he just didn't want to work hard. Um, he was a, a student at a very prestigious um, journalism school in the Midwest, that's all I'll say. And um, I followed him. I was the very next intern in the sports department and I was uh, doing any assignment they gave me, trying to come up with more work to do and doing a pretty good job at it. And so that timing, like I could have followed an amazing intern and not looked as good. Um, I followed that guy and they gave me a job before I graduated college. So that's one example. And here's, I mean, this one's almost more literal, right place, right time. But when, um, when the Miami Heat job opened up uh, with the Miami Herald, and I was still at the Palm Beach Post, um, there was the main sports editor, the executive sports editor, uh, his name was Richard Bush, and then there was a the deputy sports editor, uh, George Rojas. And it just so happened that they needed to fill that position quickly, and the executive sports editor was on vacation and could not do the interview and so the deputy sports editor, George Rojas, did the interview. And I was hired before um, the executive sports editor got back from his vacation. And I got a little bit of attitude from him initially, and I wondered why. And I found out a few months later that he had said he wouldn't have hired me <laughs> if, <laughs> if he was not on vacation, that I would not have been his choice. And so... Um, you know, thankfully, I made him, you know, sort of eat his words a little bit. Uh, he didn't last much longer, by the way. I lasted much longer than he did. He was, uh, he was let go at some point. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it was, um, that was absolutely right place, right time and a lot of luck. And so um, I think a lot of that happens. I, I don't think it's like, you know, I don't want people to think that it's all luck. I mean, you've got to hustle, you've got to create that. Uh, you got to put yourself in that position, you know, because if, 
if LeBron had come to Miami and I was a struggling beat writer, they weren't going to come after me, you know? So um, it's, it's a lot of luck, but you got to put yourself in that spot. And Israel, what about nerves? When in the field did you have nerves and how did you overcome them? 20 years into this field, do you still experience those nerves? This is my approach all the time. And I, don't, I think it's, it's um, I think most people will tell you the same is there's only one way to combat nerves and that's just preparation. Like if you are ready to do what you're going to do, then you have nothing to be nervous about. And so this is why, you know, when you combine that thinking along with the idea that uh, first impressions are very important, this is why I tend to try to really kill it the first show I do, uh, whether it be sports reporters around the horn, you know, sideline reporting, uh, because both of those reasons, right? It takes the nerves away when you're super prepared and, you know, they're going to ask you back if they like you right off the bat. And so I remember the night before my first sideline reporting uh, gig, I was freaking out. Like I, 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 I remember saying to myself, man, I've watched these games for decades, right? For and everything goes smoothly. Like it's totally, you know, looks like it's the easiest thing in the world. And now I have to be partially responsible for making that look smooth. And what if I have a brain fart? Like what if this happens? What if that happens? And then I just said to myself, um, you know, I just started thinking about all of the ESPN interviews I've done uh, live off the on the fly. I started thinking about um, what the job entails and I literally started, I said to myself, if I forgot everything I was going to say, would I be able to BS my way through 60 seconds? I'll be like, yeah, I've got that le depth of knowledge where I can do that. And so it calmed me down. And then I realized, you know, I was super ready for a game between the Nuggets and the Celtics, which wasn't really going to be watched that much <laughs> by that many. So, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's the only way to combat nerves to me is just prepare yourself and then you won't have anything to be nervous about. And what are mistakes you've made in your career that you wish you could have done differently? I have a few, but a, lot, a couple of them are just like uh, more recent slash modern um, regrets. Like I regret not establishing myself on social media diff like earlier and then having like a consistent approach to it. I'm at the point now where I'm just kind of, it's, it's a lot of effort and I could have um, to sort of rebrand myself or try to, ha you know, be more active on there. And um I probably, I wish I would have done something differently there, uh, especially now because it's just so important. Regret. I turned down the New York Times a couple of times and I, w I don't regret it because obviously things turned out great, but I wonder if it would have hardened me a little bit more to work out of, work out of New York. Um, I just didn't like the idea of living there um, and just the circumstances weren't perfect either. Uh, but that's something that I wonder, again, not regret, but I wonder if... Uh, things would have happened a little bit differently. Um, I regret not being sort of more declarative in what I want to do, because um, as much as I was happy about reaching that goal of being an NBA beat writer after 10 months uh, after graduating, it sort of left me in this place where I didn't set goals anymore because I didn't know what was possible. I thought, you know, that that they, you know, just let things happen and clearly things have been going well so far, so why not just go go that route but it also at a certain point sort of leaves you a little helpless right because you don't have a plan and you don't have a goal to, to sort of reach and you're just kind of sitting around and, and waiting for things to motivate you or trying to find things to motivate you um so man 
felt like I was talking in circles there. What, what, what was the initial question? I mean, you, you pretty much answered everything. Mistakes you've made and, you know, what you regret. Yeah. And But Izzy, I got a question for you. Why not, you kind of mentioned a little bit, why not the times? Is You said the move, but where were you in your career that you didn't want to take that one? First time, it was um, it was a weird, <laughs> and then <laughs> it was a weird uh, language con uh, issue, right? Um, I was being interviewed, I thought, to cover basketball, and the way it was explained to me is I would just cover the Nets, the N as in Nancy, the Nets, right? The new at the time, the New Jersey Nets, who were not as important, not nearly as important as the Knicks. They were always the second team over there. Um, or it seemed like it anyway. And, but there still had to be some shuffling to be done because, you know, some writer who was covering the Knicks needed to go to the NBA column, but then the NBA column had, so it was like some maneuvering that had to happen, right? But still, when they offered me the job, I thought they were offering me the job of covering the Nets. I think I know <laughs> where you're going here. Yeah, they pivoted and they offered me the New York Metropolitans beat writer job. <laughs> <The> <laughs> as in mommy. And uh, I, even though I'd covered baseball, um, covering the Mets in New York is a different animal. Covering baseball in New York is a different animal. And I don't, didn't think I was ready for a move from covering the sport that I love to covering a sport that I didn't love as much in a place that's a lot less forgiving and uh, would just dominate my time. Like absolutely, like from 2 p.m. till midnight, like you are at a ballpark every single day. And so, and they, you know, the idea was, hey, this is just to get you in. And that's the New York Times pitch to whoever they interview, it feels like, is you might come in as our soccer writer, you might leave as our Egyptian correspondent, you know, so it could be anything. Uh, but yeah, I just didn't feel that. I wasn't feeling it. And then when they finally did offer me the Knicks beat job, I had just gotten the columnist gig at the Herald and I didn't want to go backward from columnist to beat writer. And so I was just like, yeah, that was a little bit too late. And so, yeah, didn't work out. And Izzy, tell me about your relationship with uh, Dan Liebetard on Highly Questionable on ESPN. I like, I think I mentioned this earlier. I read him in high school. Um, it's not to date him too much. He was super young when he started at the Miami Herald. I think he's only like 50, 51 now. Um, and I'm turned 43 this week. So we, I, you know, read him a ton. I, I remember when I first started writing, uh, like writing features and, and columns for my, stu for my uh, the student newspaper at school, I remember saying to myself, don't try to write like Dan, right? It was because Dan's too good. Like he's got to, you know, and, and if I try to do that, it's not going to sound very good. It's not going to sound like it's me. It's, but he was the style of writing that was always in my head because I read him all the time. And so... That was um, that was sort of how he was sort of in my consciousness all the time. And then when I got to the Herald, didn't really see him a ton. Like, I think we would, like, speak at games, at any big games he'd come to write a column at. I, I remember being at the Herald, I believe, while he took his little hiatus. So he took a, a sabbatical or something. He was away from journalism altogether. I think it was right before he started the radio show. Um, and so... He was only, even like when I was the columnist and he was only around every once in a while. So we didn't have like a great relationship. Um, but it's, he was always a person that if I ever talked to, it felt like he was 
not only willing to listen, but wanting to listen and offer, you know, some advice. And so uh, in a way, you know, you're closer to Dan than you actually are, it feels like. Well, at least that's my experience. And so I remember when I was uh, struggling with, you know, coming out and how I would do it and, and, all, and everything else. And I remember just going to talk to Dan and I didn't even know what I was going to ask him. Like, I just remember I was just blah, 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 like talking in circles. And he's like, whoa, buddy, like, what, what is it that you want? Like, and I'm like, I don't know, man. I guess I just never really talked about this stuff. And so um, he's just been sort of a steadying person. Not, not even like ste steadying in a sense, but um, he just has a way of, of putting things in perspective. Um, and just, a, you know, a good human being. And like the fact that, um, you know, he's been on this, you know, he's had this radio show down here and like me being affiliated with it in any way is, you know, an honor. And it's just really cool to have people around the country just kind of talk to you. And like, it's, it's sort of the outlet. Dan has been sort of the outlet to let my personality show through, like my actual real who I am personality as opposed to just the one that, you know, people see on like uh, outtakes of around the horn or something. And so, uh, so he's just, um, yeah, he's just been a real, whether he has actually physically been there or not, he's just been a real steady force in my life and um, just a really good guy. Yeah, I remember when I spoke to you on the phone a couple of weeks ago, you know, just talking journalism, talking my career and stuff like that. He came in with a FaceTime call. You remember that? He came yeah. in with a FaceTime call. He was on, he was on one of the yeah. shows. So he's obviously a good friend. Who are some other friends you got in the field who, you know, you go to for advice and, you know, just who you hang out with? Yeah, man, there's so many of them. Um, like going back to my college days, like the friends that, you know, yeah, I don't have to see them for three years, but every time I do, it's like they never left. Um, there's an Andrea Adelson who uh, she works for ESPN.com. She covers uh, college football for us. Uh, Mark Long, who works out of Gainesville for the Associated Press, covers the Jags and the Gators. Um, Tim Reynolds down here in Miami for the Associated Press has been a friend, great friend of mine for years. George Sedano, um, Jamel Hill, uh, man, just it's I mean, Tony Reale has been <laughs> I mean, I've had of all I would say I probably have never cried as much on the phone with another human being as I did one time with Tony Reale one a uh, few years back. So that's just like um it's crazy how, you know, it just, I don't know if it's the similarities in the jobs or, you know, everything that we have in common because of these odd jobs that we have, but um, there's like a, there's a closeness that develops there. And, um, you know, Pablo and Mina have lately been, Pablo Torre and Mina Kimes have lately been people that I just, um, again, even though you don't talk to them or see them as often as you'd like, there's just sort of a connection there. I feel like a, you know, really get along with them a lot as well. So yeah, um, Clinton Yates is, I mean, just too many, too many to name. <laughs> How fun is being on television? I remember in a Halloween 2018 episode of Around the Horn, you dressed as, you know, Tony Reale, you just mentioned, The Rock, Obama, Drake, and Israel, my favorite, Conor McGregor. Tell me about that day and, you know, putting on all that makeup and the McGregor hair, the beard and the accent, everything. Tell me about that. Um, so the whole around the horn experience on Halloween it was just nutty. Um, the first time I did it, it was in 2012 and it was an election year. 
And, you know, they basically just ask every year, hey, who wants to be on the Halloween episode? And what's your idea? So that first year, I was like, um, I can do Obama. People think I look like Obama all the time. And uh, so we came with this idea. And I'm not really like an impression guy. So I just tried to get a couple of like a little bit of the cadence and, and stuff. And, you know, they had this brilliant idea of me bringing somebody that could be like my secret service. And so I had my baldest friend come in and uh, he sort of just put on a black suit and pretended to be secret service. And it wasn't really that it was that great. Right. Because, and this is actually something um, I tell some people, I don't know why people don't listen. They say that I won like seven Halloweens in a row. No, I didn't. I didn't win the first one. They remember me from the first one, but uh, Tim Kalashaw won the first one as uh, the ghost of Al Davis. And so I just remember thinking this, and this is probably like the, holy bleep i'm on tv moment like the where it actually happened was i said to myself i remember like growing up watching saturday night live and even though i'm not doing a saturday night live skit or any sort of good impression of the president i am on tv impersonating the president for the whole country to see like that doesn't happen right <laughs> and so to, you know to everyday people and so uh that was when i was just like man that's crazy um and then you know the halloween stuff just from then i was never really a halloween person but um the next year i did justin bieber and that you know came along went along very well because he was at a heat game dressed a certain way one year so i just did the exact same thing um you know then you start upping the ante and when you get to the the conor mcgregor one like i i didn't think i could do any better than that um because that was the one where i actually worked a little bit on the accent i probably like two weeks ahead of time started listening to stuff and then the day of just just listen to nothing but McGregor interviews. Um, but that was, it took seven hours to get those tattoos done. It took, um, and that was just a friend of mine just drawing them on me. Her name was Marcy. She did a, she was a, did a help me out a lot over the years uh, with these costumes. And then um, I had another person come in and just do the hair and the makeup. Um, and it, you know, once I was in that makeup and looked like that, I was like, man, I can't screw this up. Like, it's impossible. This looks too good. And so I just, you know, kept the accent rolling and it was fun. It was a ton of fun. Um, so they were all crazy. And just, yeah, the being on TV thing, like, I think, you know, that moment with the uh, with the president uh, impersonation and also, you know, whenever I say or anything, say anything like impactful about the LGBT community and like people come up to me afterward and say, hey, I saw that, you know, it's just and it meant a lot, like the reach that TV has, I think is something that, you know, can't be duplicated. And so whenever you feel that, whenever you feel the reach, when you go to a random place and somebody says something, um, you know, that meant that, that you meant, that you said something that meant something to them, I think uh, that's when you sort of recognize it, man, that's, that's, that's what that feels like. That's a really cool thing. Spurs legend, Greg Popovich. I saw a YouTube clip of you interviewing him on the sidelines. Popovich, Greg, you did better than the three-point defense in this uh, third quarter, but what's been the biggest problem defending the Lakers so far? Our biggest problem is that we're, we're playing a pitiful game. They've got good edge. They want the game. They're playing well, and we're pitiful. How do you change that in the fourth? 25 seconds on the clock. Give me a break. What's the preparation for Pop? Because he's got to be one of the hardest interviews of all time because he either gives you a lot or he gives you nothing at all. So tell me your preparation for Pop. It's interesting because, you know, you go in the first time I was, first few times I was super intimidated by him. Um, but I think my favorite sort of evolution uh, with Pop is just the pregame meetings, right? So we, the broadcast team will always talk to both coaches uh, before 
before the games. And we all get a chance to, to ask our questions, the play-by-play guy, the color guy, and the reporter. And I could sort of see Pop sort of gaining respect for me as the time has gone along from 2013 until, you know, a couple of years back, where I realized that, like, he, he recognizes that I know my stuff. You know, he appreciates the questions um, that I ask pregame, right? And he also appreciates the question I asked the during game. Reason being, he wants them to be as plain as possible. He wants them to be open-ended. He wants them to have not much thought involved for him because he's got to think about what he's going to do in the timeout, and this is not something he's fond of. It's clear. He says it a lot. And so it does take more effort to consider the question because you also don't want to ignore something obvious, right? If there was a segment or a play in that quarter that the coach can't answer, I mean, you got to ask it. You can't just, uh, you know, avoid it because it's Greg Popovich and have him intimidate you. So you've definitely got to pay attention to that. But if there's not an obvious question, and this is more difficult than first quarters uh, when you're interviewing him, you've got to find a way to come up with two open-ended generic questions that are not the same and that he will not mock. And, um, you know, it became a little easier as we went because there was a little bit of a vibe uh, between him and I. He kind of knew what to expect. Um, I haven't done his games in about a year and a half now, any of his games. So it's uh, got a little pop withdrawal. But um, I actually I actually appreciate him a lot. Like, I have a ton of respect for him. I think, you know, there was one point where he said it's been a pleasure after our interviews and he wasn't, like, being sarcastic. And so um, yeah, I'm a fan of pop. He's like, uh, he's, I don't know, like an uncle I didn't know I had. <laughs> And Israel, what about commitment in the journalism field, especially as a sideline reporter and working for the NBA? So flying and missing some events, maybe some family things. Christmas, I've seen you do Christmas games. Talk to me about that in the journalism field. I mean, it's a sacrifice. You know, um, I never missed uh, Christmas with my family until, you know, whenever it was that the heat became relevant. And then I had to do some Christmas games, whether it was as a beat writer or as a you know, then uh, doing the NBA sidelines and stuff. And, you know, to me, it's just, it's an experience. You can recreate the other stuff, right? Like um, I'd always do uh, an Isthmus uh, for whenever <laughs> I'd have to miss Christmas. I'd just do another one uh, at my place. And, you know, I'd give, and, you know, the kids would all be told that Santa dropped the presents off at my place and we had to do a, a redo. And so um, you can recreate all that, all that other stuff. And um, there's nothing that, like, I don't do it because you know hey it's going to be around forever but those games are going to be around forever and it's kind of cool that uh you know that i get to be a part of some of them so israel we haven't talked too much nba here so what are your thoughts on the nba returning to the disney bubble and who you got winning it all i'm i'm hopeful it will go off without a hitch um i do think there's going to be moments of trepidation where Adam's going to have to decide whether they need to continue. I think there's going to be at least one or two of those. And I think one of them is going to come up in this early portion when the players start arriving and the tests start rolling in and everybody's going to have to be reminded, Hey, this is the reason we're doing this. This is why there's going to be a quarantine process. This is why we have the test because there will be positives and we want to just make sure it's cleared out as soon as we find them. Um, so I do think that's going to happen and hopefully you know, it's crazy to think that you have to say this because we're just doing these things for money, but hopefully nobody gets severely ill and that we regret ever doing this because that's, that's going to be a terrible look um, when we examine 
why exactly we're doing this if we are forced to examine that because of somebody's you know severe illness or, or worse um so hopefully it all goes without a hitch um either the clippers or the bucks are going to win a championship if they finish it um i it's not that i don't think i just think um defensively uh they're going to you know they've got the right combination of defense three-point shooting and depth and I don't know if everything's going to be the same. You don't know which players are going to be around. Everything's going to be crazy. But assuming everything's normal, as normal as it can be, I'd say Bucks Clippers final, and I'd probably say the Bucks win it. You're the, you're the first person that asked me just that question. Everybody's only asking me about when we're coming back, are you going? I literally have not even put that much thought into who I think is going to win it. The only thing I remember thinking about one time was when Chris Mannix said, that the Sixers are going to get out of the East, and he gave a bunch of reasons why. And I was like, "Oh, I don't think that's going to happen." But and, the and first and time I've ever picked Wow, <laughs> I surprised myself. And uh, lastly, you have one hour to interview anybody in history. Who are you picking? Oh, dead or alive? Dead or alive? Man, I feel like this question changes, or this answer would change all the time. But the first one that comes to mind is John F. Kennedy. I had a bit of an obsession, not really an obsession, but um, you know, minor version of an obsession with JFK and you know his biography, uh, and, and, I, and I just read a bunch about him, and I just think there's just, just so much interest there. Um, it's funny because the first thing in my mind was I thought you were going to say a sports figure, and I would assume alive, and that answer would have been Serena, um, but man, any figure at all that are alive, I got to go. I got to go JFK, although there's some people like I, I'm very much intrigued by shoeless Joe Jackson, but I don't think the interview would be very good because he was reportedly kind of a dummy. So I don't think he would be on that list, but I guess I'll, I'll stick to JFK for now. All right, folks, that's it. We'll take JFK from Israel. Maybe, you know, whenever that may be, if we could time travel or something like that. Ladies and gentlemen, ESPN reporter Israel Gutierrez. Israel, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate you giving, you know, everybody listening the advice because there'll be a lot of young journalists listening. My pleasure, Mikey. All right, thank you. Hi, brother. That was Israel. fun.